Well, welcome back, everyone, for another week of A Season in the Minors. We're studying those minor prophets, those books that you usually skip over when you're reading the Old Testament because they're hard and they seem anachronistic and uh, you're not really sure how to understand them. And obviously, we can't unpack everything that is in most of the minor prophets, so we've been trying to give sort of an overview. But the wonderful thing about the book of Obadiah is it's nice and short. If you read it, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses long. Now, the book of Obadiah is a judgment that God gives through his prophet against the nation of Edom. And if you were with us last week, you remember that the book of Amos started with seven judgments against seven nations, among whom one was Edom. So what's the deal? Why does God need a whole other book of the Bible to throw another judgment Edom's way? Well, it was because Edom and Israel had a unique relationship. It went all the way back to Abraham. You remember Abraham? He was the man whom God made a promise to that the Savior of the world would come through his biological lineage. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac with his wife Rebekah had twin boys. And while those twin boys were still in Rebekah's womb, they were literally wrestling with each other. And I have a pregnant wife, and I know that the baby can get really active, but obviously this was abnormal because the Bible tells us in Genesis 25 that the baby's jostled within Rebecca so much that she said, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Well, God said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Two nations. It turned out to be true. You remember those two boys came out with the names Jacob, who was the younger, and Esau, who was the older. And Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation of Israel was what the Old Testament followed. It was God's chosen people. It was the biological lineage through whom the promise to Abraham was going to be made good. But there was also Esau, And Esau became the nation of Edom. His people were called the Edomites. And Edom is just the Hebrew word for red. Now, two reasons why they took this name, the Edomites. Uh, First of all, if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, one of Esau's definitive characteristics was that he was very hairy and his hair was all red. And so they traced their lineage back to this guy and they thought, well, we might as well call ourselves the red people. I don't know if they were all gingers. Maybe they were... It probably doesn't matter all that much. There was a second, more important reason, though, why they called themselves the Edomites. It had to do with where they lived. On this map, you can see the kingdom of Edom is the yellow portion at the bottom. So you can see kind of where we are, Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem, just north of that. The kingdom of Edom operated underneath the Dead Sea all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. And you can see, probably very small, and you don't have good eyesight, you maybe can't read it, but that little star at the bottom is called Petra. Now, Petra is the modern name for this city, but in the ancient times when the Edomites actually lived in that place, it was called Salah. It was their most important city. Salah is just the Hebrew word for rocks. And actually, Obadiah makes a reference to this city, Salah, in verse 3 of the text, where he says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rocks. He literally names the city there, Salah, you who live in Salah. Salah was an amazing city. Uh, It looked 
Well, it looks like this. It still looks like this. Cut right out of red rock. And so the red people who lived in the red city called themselves red. But the city of Salah, for all of its beauty, was also an amazing place because of its defense mechanism. Um, The city of Salah was on the end of a pathway that went through a couple-mile-long cave that was only 50 feet wide at some portions. So if you wanted to attack the city of Salah as an army, you would have to get your whole army through this cave that was only 50 feet wide at some points, which made it almost impenetrable. The Edomites could fight off anyone who would come near them. And being cut out of the rock, it was an obviously very sturdy city. And so they thought, no one will be able to overtake us. Just as an aside, if this place looks familiar to you, it was the set of an Indiana Jones film. And you can actually still go visit it. The city of Petra is in Jordan today. But there were more advantages for the uh, nation of Edom. If we go back to the map, uh, where their kingdom was located was right on the King's Highway. Now, if you just follow the map kind of straight down from the Jordan River all the way through the Dead Sea and keep going straight down, there would be a trade route that doesn't show up on this map, but would go right there down to the Gulf of Aqaba. Gulf, Gulf of Aqaba leads out to the Indian Ocean, which made it an awesome trade route from what we know as Africa and Saudi Arabia up to what we know as Europe. They weren't called that at the time. And that King's Highway actually didn't go just past Salah. It literally went through the cave to get to Salah. So the nation of Edom had this impenetrable fortress and access to all the goods of the modern world and influence over anyone who passed through. In fact, they were famous for taking customs and tolls for people who would go through. Compare that to Israel. Sure, Israel has the promised land that God promised to give them, but if you track Israel's history, it's not exactly shining. Israel receives the promise, Jacob, his 12 sons, and they're in Egypt because Joseph, one of those sons, is a ruler in Egypt. But when Joseph dies, the next ruler doesn't know Joseph. And so he enslaves the children of Israel for 400 years. By Moses, God leads them out of slavery in the Exodus. But that leading out Exodus went to 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't trust God to get them in the promised land. And once they actually got in the promised land, it was only a few generations until they were in the time of the judges. Which, if you remember, the Old Testament book of Judges is about an absolute disaster. So God gave them a king, the first of whom was not that great, King Saul. The second king, though, was good, King David. You know him. He expanded Israel's borders, united the nation, conquered a whole bunch of people. But starting with David's son Solomon and going on from there, the nation deteriorated. It split into northern and southern kingdoms. Remember, we talked about this. And those northern and southern kingdoms were both conquered. In 722 BC, the uh, northern kingdom conquered by the Assyrians. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom conquered by the Babylonians. They went into exile and eventually came back, but only as a shadow of their former self and never really controlled that land in any sort of prosperous way ever again. And to make matters worse, the Edomites were just jerks the whole time. If you read through the Old Testament, the Edomites keep showing up just pestering the nation of Israel. I mean, what God said to Rebekah actually came true. These two nations were just going to be in conflict with one another, and one was going to be stronger than the other, and it turned out the Edomites were generally the stronger one. Numbers 20, when Moses is trying to lead the children of Israel out of the Exodus, they ask if they can go through Edom. 
They say, really diplomatically, we're not going to touch anything, we're not going to eat anything, we're not going to drink anything, and the Edomites say, no. They try again, okay, but, but for real, like, we will not touch anything, and even if we do, we will repay you for it, and the Edomites say, nope, if you come through, we're going to kill you. But it got worse. The 9th century BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by a couple tribes around Judah, and the nation of Edom came in and plundered Jerusalem, taking a whole bunch of its artifacts and wealth. And then in 586 BC, when the Babylonians came and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, there the Edomites were, again, taking things from from Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible actually records this for us in Psalm 137, when it says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, tear it to its foundations, they said. Now, if some of you have two boys in your house, you know they can get at each other's ner- get on each other's nerves. But this was to like national proportions, right? Now, we think the book of Obadiah was probably written around the time of Jerusalem falling to the Babylonian Empire. And just as an aside, this actually continued between Edom and Israel even after Obadiah wrote. In the fourth century, I believe, the, uh, the nation of Edom tried to attack Jerusalem itself. Um, Later, the nation of Edom in, I believe it's the second century, was uh, attacked Jerusalem and then was conquered by Solomon, or not Solomon, excuse me, another king, um, who killed 20,000 of their men. And then some of the most famous Edomites uh, who ever lived, you actually know them because you know your Bible, they were three guys who were in three generations of kings. Their names were Herod the Great, who killed the babies when they were trying to kill baby Jesus, Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist, and Herod Agrippa I, who imprisoned the apostle Peter and killed Jesus' half-brother James. These are all Edomites. So the whole thing kept going, right? The nation of Edom and the nation of Israel were obviously in conflict all the time. Um, But think to yourself, if you're a person from the nation of Israel, aren't you just like a, a little bit miffed at the whole situation? Like you're God's people, Children of Israel, Jacob's sons and daughters, God has made the promise that you are his chosen people, his chosen nation, the Savior is going to come through you. And here you are, scraping by, messing around, having no prosperity in your nation, basically at all throughout your history. And Edom's over there having the time of their life. You ever think that uh, the nation of Israel prayed Psalm 10 about the Edomites? Think they ever thought, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. But maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe you feel a lot like that right now. Like you know that one person, that one person who isn't a Christian. They don't act like a Christian. They frankly are antagonistic towards Christianity. And yet it seems like their life is going really well. Maybe you think of our city, a place where there is godlessness all over the place. People seeking pleasure, people taking advantage of others. And yet you also know that the Toronto area is essentially the richest place in this country. Or maybe you think of a political candidate or leader in whom you cannot see a shred of integrity, but you realize that they either operate a very high office in our land 
or maybe soon will operate a high office in someone's land. And then you compare yourself and you think, man, here I am coming to church when I could just be sitting at home watching it online. I'm here for communion. I'm reading my Bible regularly. I'm praying regularly. I'm trying to be kind to my spouse or my kids or my neighbor, but I'm barely scraping by. I got struggles. I got pain. Maybe you've asked yourself the question, and I think most Christians have asked themselves, if God is on our side, why does it seem like everything goes so well for them? Well, that's what the book of Obadiah answers. Because it shows us the relationship between God's people and their enemies. And just so you understand that I'm not making this up, like I'm not just taking this Old Testament book and just sort of imposing it on our modern day, I want to show you why I can say that. Uh, the last, book, last verse of Obadiah says, The deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, a phrase, the kingdom will be the Lord's, is only quoted in one place in the entire New Testament, and that's in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, which talks about the end of the world, where it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So certainly, the book of Obadiah is a historical book about historical events. That's why I spent the first 10 minutes of the sermon laying that out for you. But there is an application for us today that we can understand this book as typical of how God's people and their enemies are going to interact. The way you can think about this, and this is just true for a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament, is like a mountain range. If you look at a mountain range, you can see some of the shorter mountains right in front of you, and then you can see the tops of the bigger mountains behind them. Think of it like that. So the short mountains are like the actual history of Edom and Israel, but the tall mountains behind them are the full fulfillment of these prophecies in Jesus Christ and in the New Testament church. So I'm going to try to do both, try to help you understand Obadiah in its original context and how it applies to us as Christians today and hopefully help us understand how we interact with our enemies. So thankfully for us, this is a nice short book. So we're going to read the whole thing. We'll read the first 14 verses and then we'll talk about it. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who can say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. On the day you stand aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. 
nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So far the text. So at first, God says, okay, Edom's going to be completely destroyed wiped off the face of the earth. And we know that this happened in 435 BC. A tribe that had been allies with the Edomites actually betrayed them and took Salah from them. They were essentially in subjugation for about 250 years until year 185 BC um, when they tried to attack Jerusalem but were cut down at 20,000 soldiers. Uh, Basically, they were decimated, but a few of them remained in the area of Judah and Jerusalem and took on those high-ranking positions that you know as the Herods, right? They figured their way into society, even though they weren't really a proper nation in Israel. But by the year 70 AD, when the emperor, Roman emperor Titus, destroyed Jerusalem, he also, in destroying Jerusalem, killed basically all the remaining Edomites and those who were left assimilated into other nations. By the end of the first century, the Edomites were completely gone. And God says this was because of their violence against Jacob, because they had treated the son, or, well, really the descendants of the son, through whom the promise was going to come, the promise of the Savior. And he lists off all the things that they had done, plundering Jerusalem, killing some of the exiles, etc., etc. So what does this have to do with us? Well, in the ultimate context, what we can understand is that there is going to be a day when God is going to completely wipe out the church's enemies. And this isn't just from the book of Obadiah. Multiple places in the Bible talk about this, that Jesus is going to come back and on that day, he's going to judge those who believe in him and those who don't. Those who have aligned themselves with him and those who have allied themselves with Satan. And those who have allied themselves with Satan will go into the eternal fire, the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And for the church, that's a wonderful comfort that someday our enemies will be completely wiped out. But I'm guessing that we don't always see it that way. A lot of people come up to me and and are excited about what Jesus is doing in their life. You know, I'm thankful that Jesus forgives my sins. Thankful that Jesus is in control. Thank you that Jesus, thankful that Jesus rose from the dead. But very, very rarely does someone come up to me and say, I'm so thankful that God's going to wipe out all our enemies. We just don't talk like that. I tried to meditate on that this week and figure out why we don't. I think there's two reasons. The first one, I think, has to do with what we consider to be our enemy. If you were a tribe and another tribe kept attacking your tribe and destroying your buildings and killing your children and raping your women, and someone came to you and said, I'm going to completely wipe out your enemies, how would that ring in your ears? Like wonderful good news, right? So why don't we feel that way when God says he's going to wipe out the church's enemies? I wonder if it's because, on the one hand, we don't really know who our enemies are. If we were to take a test, like I give you a piece of paper, you write down, what are the top three enemies of the church today? I bet we wouldn't come to the same conclusions. And secondly, even if we did come to the same conclusions, are we living our lives like they are our enemies? 
If you knew that Canada was at war and that at any time there could be a massive attack on Canada, how would you live your life? The same as you live it right now? Probably differently. You'd prepare. You'd buy necessary things. You'd take time out of your day to make sure everything was set, to make sure you had contingency plans, whatever you need. And yet I think Christians in our suburban context where we feel relatively safe all the time have sort of pushed aside the idea of the church's enemies and said, nah, they're not all that bad. But what is Satan's ultimate goal? Satan, the chief enemy of the church, wants nothing more than to completely destroy you. Why don't you think he's working here? Now, there are a thousand different ways in which Satan, Satan works, and he likes to be very sneaky about all of them, but I'll just give you one. Have you thought about this? A lot of good things can happen because of one of these in your pocket, but don't you think Satan loves having a window into your life at any moment? And you'll pick it up and you'll put your eyeballs on it. It's just a vibrate or a ping. Or maybe he likes the fact that you spend two hours every night looking at a bigger version of one of these and only 15 minutes reading your Bible every night. I don't know. There are a number of different ways in which Satan can attack us. But if we don't think he is attacking us or we don't live like he's attacking us, then we are destined to be destroyed by him. Now, the beautiful message, of course, is that there will be one day when God does, does wipe out our enemies. But for now, let's be conscious that he hasn't done that yet. I think there's a second reason, though, that those words don't ring as absolute good news. I think we're kind of ashamed of them. I mean, the criticism that could be brought against the Christian church is, okay, you have this doctrine of divine judgment, eternal punishment for people who are not believers. Isn't that a little exclusive? Isn't that going to lead to like oppression or self-righteousness or thinking you're better than everybody else because they're the ones who don't believe and you're the ones who believe. You're the good ones. They're the bad ones. That's the criticism that a lot of people bring against Christianity. What are you going to say to that? Well, the first thing to say is, yes, that does happen. Often, because of our sinful hearts, we take our faith in Jesus and believe that it in some way makes us better than everyone else out there. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And you can see this in the book of Obadiah in the context of it, right? Edom and Israel, they come from two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Is it because Jacob was particularly good-looking or strong or smart? No, in many ways, Jacob was kind of the loser of the two of them. But God chose Jacob by grace. Definitely Esau was the stronger. That's what God said in his prophecy to Rebekah. But Jacob received the grace of being God's people. And so as we think about our enemies, those out there, let's remember we came from the same place they came from. We have the same sinful natures living in us that they have. We, are the same, we have the same capability of evil as they do. The only difference between us and them is that we've received grace. And not because of our choice or because of our ability or because we're particularly good people, but only because God is gracious. And that cannot breed superiority or any sort of hate towards anyone else who doesn't believe what we believe. 
In fact, if anything, it should bring a heart of compassion to the table. It says, I was once like you, and I could not have gotten myself out of it. But God, who is gracious, pulled me out by my baptism, by the preaching of his word, by the regular feeding me of his body and blood. And I am here not because I have pulled it off or because I'm particularly faithful, but because God is faithful. Just like Jacob. Just like Esau. So, Christian, as we look forward to the ultimate judgment of our enemies, let's be conscious of them. But also remember that we were once like them and that we've been saved by grace. And in fact, the rest of the book of Obadiah bears this out. If we continue reading at verse 15, it says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath and exiles from Jerusalem who are in Seraphad will possess the towns of the Negev. Now, of course, there's a whole bunch of names in this text, which we can't walk through. You can research them on your own time if you'd like. Uh, but let's just talk about what the text says. Specifically, God says that the nation of Edom drank on God's holy hill and that that in some way is a corollary to how the nations will drink and drink and drink until they are as if they had never been. We don't even know exactly what this is, but it seems that there was at one point, probably one of the times that Edom conquered or plundered Jerusalem, that they spent a night having a drinking party on God's holy hill in Jerusalem and God was not okay with that because that's the place where he was supposed to be worshipped. And so he says, in the same way that you guys drank and drank and drank that night, you will drink and drink and drink what's implied, the cup of wrath. You can think of this when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup was kind of a colloquial way of talking about receiving either death or the wrath of God. But did you notice the switch that God made in this portion of the text? From talking about specifically Edom, he then suddenly says, the day of the Lord is here for all nations. All the nations will drink and drink until they are as if they had never been. See, God is taking Esau and using him as an example for all people. Uh, you know this if you've ever been on a sports team or maybe in a theater production or worked for a company where the boss or the coach or the director will pick on one person, but they know that they're communicating to everybody and everybody else knows that they're communicating to everybody. I think back to my high school football days, our offensive line was having a bad game. And so my coach picked on our center because he was kind of the leader of our group. But we all knew he was talking about all of us. Well, God's doing the same thing with Edom. Edom is this way. Edom did this thing. And I'm not okay with that. And that goes for the rest of you too. But do you know who's included in the rest of you? Judah? Israel? All nations. 
There is this petty violence happening between Edom and Israel, but someday it's not just going to be about Edom or Israel. It's going to be about all nations. And obviously God cares about Israel because the Savior was going to come through that line. But once the Savior came, it was no longer about Israel. It was about all nations. So what does this have to do with us? Well, first, that we understand that this book is not just about Edom, it's about everyone. In fact, uh, the Hebrew commentators that I read on this book say that it's no coincidence that these two words are, well, it's not, not very good, I'll try it a different way, see if it shows up better. Yeah, these two words are the two words for Edom and humanity. If you can tell, they're exactly the same. In Hebrew, the word for Edom and the word for humanity are spelled the exact same way. They're just pronounced differently. And so when any Hebrew would be reading this book of Obadiah and they saw Edom, they would also see humanity at the same time. We would call it kind of a homonym in English, right? This book is about all nations. How we can talk about those people out there who attack the church, but remember that we ourselves attack the church daily from the inside by our own sinfulness. It is only God's grace that forgives those sins, heals those wounds between people and between God and us, and makes it so that this church can continue to sojourn despite their enemies towards that last day when all the enemies, including my sinful nature, will be wiped out. But then second... It reminds us where that's all coming from. The text says that there will be deliverance on Mount Zion. It will be holy in Jacob, Israel. Israel reduced to one man who stood in for Israel and died on a cross and rose again will take his inheritance. Someday there will be one man who comes from Israel, yes, but will be for all people. And there will be deliverance even for those Edomites, even for those Israelites, even for those Canadians. Now you might think to yourself, well, that seems awfully exclusive, doesn't it? Maybe somebody outside would think the same thing. Isn't Christianity pretty exclusive? They say the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. What do we say to that? Inevitably, if you have a conversation with somebody who says Christianity is so exclusive, you know, every religion kind of has a little picture of what God is like. Maybe you have part of God, but all the religions sort of understand something about God. They'll inevitably trot out this analogy that goes something like this. Uh, Imagine you have four blind men and they all fall into a pit with an elephant and they're trying to figure out what this elephant looks like. And so one touches the side and says, elephants are kind of like walls. And another one touches the legs and says, elephants are kind of like tree trunks. And one touches the trunk and says, elephants are kind of like snakes. That's what all religions are like. They all kind of have a part of the whole, but they don't understand the whole thing. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, you can just say that the only way that you can tell that story is if you're not blind and you know that it's an elephant. Which means that the only way to tell the story, the only way to make that claim about all world religions is that you in some way are claiming that you have a higher level of knowledge than all those religions and everyone should submit to you. You're being rather exclusive. But that's a snarky answer and we're not really about snarky answers. We're about gospel-centered answers. So what do you say if you want to help that person understand Christianity? You say, yeah, Christianity is exclusive just like every other worldview. Every other worldview thinks that it is correct and all the other ones are wrong. That's the definition of a worldview. Even if you say no worldviews are right, that's a worldview that 
expects that all the other worldviews are wrong. But what makes Christianity so unique is its radical inclusivity. Yes, it is exclusive. There is only one way to be saved through Jesus Christ, but Christianity is radically inclusive, inclusive in a way that no other worldview or religion is inclusive. And you can see that from the very last verse of the text of Obadiah. Obadiah writes, Deliverers will go up on, Jerusalem, on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, the reason I have those words up on highlighted is because actually some scholars say that the words should be out from. And in Hebrew, it can go either way. The words can mean either thing. But fitting with the way that this text has flowed, saying there is judgment coming, there is deliverance that is on Mount Zion, and now the deliverers are going to what? Go up to Mount Zion? Well, the deliverance already happened on Mount Zion, so the deliverers should go out from Mount Zion. See, every worldview has an outreach strategy, but Christian, Christianity's outreach strategy is different. Every other worldview's outreach strategy is essentially, be like me because I'm better than you, or be like me because I'm going to force you to. Every worldview. Anything you can think of, any way of thinking, any way of making sense of the world, it fits into one of those two categories, except Christianity, because Christianity's outreach strategy is, I'm better than you, here. It wasn't because of something I did. It's because something someone did to me. I will deliver you with this message that you don't have to change. You don't have to be better. You get to be saved. Every other worldview says change. Christianity says you have already been paid for the way that you are. Completely different. Completely unique. And the New Testament bears this out, that those deliverers, those ones who go out from Zion, are sitting in these chairs right now and standing on this stage right now. When the Apostle Paul writes to his understudy pastor, Timothy, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. I thought God saved us. He does. Through deliverers through deliverers who stand up on a stage and preach the word, who hand you the bread and the wine, through deliverers who talk to your children about what God has done for them, about, from deliverers who reach out to their friends and family who don't know this message and freely give it to them, not because they're better than them, but because Jesus is gracious. So let's see if we can put a little bit of a bow on Obadiah. Our enemies are out there, and we ought to be conscious of them. We ought to be watching out for the many and sneaky ways that Satan is trying to destroy us from within. But then also know that we too were at one time enemies. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we share that message, freely given, freely received, and freely re-given, to those same people who were like us. So that deliverance could come from Mount Zion and go out into all the world. And let that exclusive message of Jesus only for the salvation of your sins be absolutely radically inclusive of all people from all walks of life, of all skin colors, of all uh, socioeconomic statuses. Because it was never about Edom and Israel, it was about Jesus saving all people. And someday, it will all be made right. 
And the book of Revelation tells us, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And so we long for that day. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in many, in various ways, Satan attacks us daily. He attacks our minds, our hearts, our marriages, our churches, our friendships, our nations. He attacks all things because he loves chaos and hates your good. You have absorbed all that evil into your son and you have let him die with it on the cross so that the message of free forgiveness can flow out from him to us and then to others. We ask that you would make that happen in our church, in our community, for the good of this city, for the good of our nation, for the good of the world. A deliverance come from Zion and flow through us. We ask it in your name.